Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. This is Erica Jacobs with Riverside Sheriff Cal ID. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, hey, Glenn, uh, how's everything going in your neck of the woods? It is going quite well, thank you. And how are you doing, sir? Oh, doing all right. Um, doing some more movies. Uh, even got online uh, with the whole family, uh, brothers, sisters, parents, nieces, nephews, on a big um, uh, video chat call from you know different parts of uh, the Phoenix area and then my sister and, and her kids all the way in Ohio. So it was good. And you all watched Life Room, I take it? <laughs> hey, uh, you know what? That's tr- that's the perfect movie to watch now. An outbreak, you know, being trapped in inside, not being able to get out. <laughs> uh, so ahead of the game on, uh, on, on certain things. For those uninitiated, <laughs> before I got involved in the whole forensics thing... Uh, me and some, you know, some goofball friends when we were back in our twenties decided we were going to make a zombie movie one summer. If you've gone through the entirety of Netflix and Prime, uh, the last one left is probably Life Room, which you can find on Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> I and I do own a copy of it, my friend. Uh, yes, yes, you do. Uh, no, last night was that thing you do. I don't think I'd seen it since oh, yeah. the movie theater. So that's yeah. a, that's a fun movie. Great uplifting movie. It is. Tom Hanks at his best. Yeah, and and I kept looking and going, "Hey, wait a minute, that's that's Charlize Theron." She's <laughs> she's like the kind of annoying girlfriend with like the big bouffant hairdo, and and it's just crazy now thinking because I every time I see her, I'm thinking Mad Max Fury Road, right? Ah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, what you been up to recently? Any any updates for us? Yeah, a couple. Uh, first of all, I received some really nice emails from folks at the uh, London Metropolitan, you know, Scotland Yard. Oh, right. And they uh, they actually just wanted a, a shout out. And so I thought, well, that's that's no problem. We can certainly say hey to everyone over there in London and in England. Hope you guys are staying sane and protecting yourselves in these times. But yeah, they uh, I, I don't know if you had noticed, but we did have this uptick in listenership over in the UK. That's and a number of them are, are listening to the podcast now. So that, that's uh, great. Thanks, guys. And yeah. we appreciate the, the additional listeners and support. Yeah, a, a big hello, governor, from over here in the States. <laughs> <laughs> well, well done. <laughs> uh, sorry. And, and let's see, we also received a couple of messages and a little bit of feedback about the movie episode that we oh, okay. did. Yeah. We didn't uh, have any like spoiler complaints, did we? No, no, okay, no, no. Good, good, good. No, no, none. Uh, but the movie episode two weeks ago, because we're always, you know, as, as you know, Eric, but the listeners don't realize we're always trying to record some of these and then it takes a couple of weeks to edit and get them all ready. So we're, we're often ahead of the game a little bit. But anyway, one of the messages was, how did we not guess the suspect and the usual suspects from the very first scene? What? And that for, for this person, it was ruined uh, because they figured it out right away. What? Uh, but I, I, I know. But I actually thought this is very easy because you you didn't know anything about it when you saw it. You saw it, I think you said, two weeks before it had come out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I saw it the Thursday night before it had come out. So... We had no idea that there was anything about the ending. Like right? there being so, a twist or yeah, or some sort exactly. of whodunit thing. Yeah. Right. 
And and admittedly, that that is one of those things that annoys me when I hear people talking about a movie, like an M. Night Shyamalan movie, before you knew anything about M. Night Shyamalan, that you wouldn't have known that he had any twists at the end, like the movie The Sixth Sense, of course. I never would have guessed there was a twist to it until I had heard other people, and then you're looking for the twist right. going into it. So I can, I can appreciate what they were saying. Uh, but they also mentioned that uh, they really did like The Bone Collector. Uh, they were glad that we gave it an honorable mention and that they are uh, good investigators in, in that movie. And this particular listener really enjoys uh, – in fact, she says she really enjoys singing Lady Forensic Scientist. <laughs> well, which, and, Yeah, go ahead. And that was um, – uh, who was the actress? Was that Angelina, Angelina Jolie. Jolie. Right. And I believe that like she was at the scene of the crime and then it was about to rain. So she like did something real quick to, to like preserve the evidence and, you know, yes. really think on her feet. Uh, so yeah, she you know was, that, uh, she was a rookie in, in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, uh, you know, and, and I, I did think about that afterwards that, of course, many of our movies were, I'd say, very male centric, sort of typical movies that males kind of like. And that we, I, I don't know, I didn't seem like we, we did any, any of the uh, the ladies' favorite forensic movies. Well, Murder so, by Numbers being another one that we did an honorable mention for with you know, right. a female uh, investigator. So, yeah. Yes. So uh, if, if there are any listeners that would like to advise us of some female-friendly female movies that we might have missed in that list, we're happy to, to mention that in, in a future episode. Absolutely. Well, you know, for expanding out into TV, my favorite TV forensic scientist – uh, is Abby from NCIS. Uh, and uh, even though it's, it's completely unrealistic, the amount of knowledge that she has and how she just operates by herself. But <laughs> uh, I just like that character. Um, but or, I, I know- or, or that her chief or sheriff would not have given her several letters of warning that if you don't cover up your tattoos, remove your piercings, <laughs> right. and make your hair color normal, <laughs> you will not have this job next week. Exactly. Um, and, and I also love the first, well, the first couple seasons of Bones. Mm. Uh, another honorary mention that I, I forgot, I, I don't know why it was, I didn't mention it last week, uh, is I believe it's an HBO movie called Citizen X. Um, I don't, I don't know it. It's, uh, it came out in 95. It's a true crime story, uh, stars Stephen Ray and Donald Sutherland and Max von Sydow. Uh, and it's about the Soviet Union serial killer Andrei Chikatilo. Uh, oh. So it is it is quite an excellent movie, and uh, you just yell at this TV screen um, as the investigation just makes mistake after mistake after mistake, and this guy just keeps killing. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's if well if you haven't seen it, then yeah, go ahead and and uh, and take a look, Citizen X. Okay, uh, done. I will put that on my list. Right next to I Come in Peace. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, are we ready to finish off our David Cam uh, series? Yes. All right. So part two, um, I want to give a quick recap uh, for everyone who may not have caught all of part one or, or forgot everything in the interim week. David Cam uh, was uh, on trial for murdering his wife and two kids. Uh, the evidence for the prosecution is a, a blood spatter expert and crime scene reconstructurist found high-velocity impact spatter on his T-shirt. Uh, the blood is matched to uh, the five-year-old daughter, Jill. 
so essentially, if you're if you've got this type of blood spatter on you, you had to have been within very close proximity to uh, to the gunshot when the uh, uh, when that occurred, and then that this is the blood that gets onto you from a, a gunshot. Uh, a long list of women come in to testify against David Cam that uh, they had affairs with him or that there was sexual misconduct when he was a state trooper and uh, you know, pulling someone over. Uh, there were two medical examiners or pathologists that found blunt force trauma on the genitals of the daughter, Jill, and testified that she must have been molested within hours of her death. So then there's also this evidence that uh, David Cam made a phone call from his residence at 7.19 p.m., uh, even though he claimed to have been playing basketball from 7 to 9.30. And additionally, two inmates, uh, after he's arrested, testify that David Cam confessed to them. So this is kind of the, all the evidence that is you know, brought against him, and that uh, and he is convicted. But the first trial is overturned, and uh, the Indiana Court of Appeals you know throws out the conviction and basically slams the judge for allowing these women to come in. I think it was was it thirteen that I mentioned last time? Yes, all coming in to testify about this misconduct, uh, and said you know it was immaterial to the murder charges, so it shouldn't have been allowed in. And they like they made sure to you know hammer home that point. Uh, they also say that if the court allows testimony about the blood force trauma to the daughter's genitals, then they're going to have to prove that the trauma was caused by David, not just that there was this trauma by itself. The original prosecutor is no longer in office, so a new prosecution team comes in led by Keith Hernandez, who reevaluates no. the case and decides... No, 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 that's the baseball player. Keith, thank you. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Uh, uh, that that would be really fascinating to watch. But th- <laughs> that, that did not trial. that did not happen. All right, um, Your Honor, I'm so sure about this case <laughs> that I will knock it out of the park. The original prosecutor was no longer in office. He had lost uh, the next election. So the new prosecution team, led by Keith Henderson, comes in, reevaluates the case, but decides that the evidence is still convincing to move forward. So, um, first of all, I wanted to say, uh, the information for, uh, these two episodes, um, they're coming from a few different places, uh, Wikipedia for one, because, you know, you always can go there for at least a basic outline, uh, of things. Uh, the 48 hours mystery episode that aired in, I believe, 2007. And then the recent U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, uh, document uh, that was decided September 10th of last year, 2019. So uh, that's that's kind of our sources for all this. So, you know, with that evidence, Glenn, uh, I mean, again, besides the women that, you know, coming in to testify that got the first trial overturned, on the surface, that would feel like pretty strong evidence, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the blood spatter that is the most critical here because it effectively places him at the scene now whether or not he pulled the trigger or not he had to be close enough to have had basically back spatter and blood spatter on him when the uh, wife and children were shot so that to me is the most critical everything else aside that's the one that places him at the actual scene and not just at the scene at the moment that the shot is fired correct all right so Let's look at some of the evidence that defense is bringing up. 
Um, so they have 11 eyewitnesses that back up David's claim that he never left the gym between 7 p.m. and and 9.30 p.m. And what about that phone call? Well, there was a mistake. Uh, Verizon came in and said it was actually at 6.19 p.m., not 7.19. I'm not sure how familiar you are, Glenn, with Indiana, but it has... Oh. Yes, they have. Yes, they have really weird time zones. They have it's, really weird time zones. Yep. It. It. Yeah. It sort of. It has weird. Like certain counties cross the line, and like one county on this side, well, while other counties on this side, yeah, that's right. And this. So I mean, they have things like you know, Gary, Indiana, is basically like with Chicago, right? And then this part of Indiana, where this is all take, taking place, is just across the river from Louisville. So they're more on like Louisville time. And then other parts of Indiana are doing their own thing. And then I believe at the time in 2000, different parts of Indiana were or were not on or not or off of daylight savings time. So there's even Correct. that all mixed in. So yeah, that and, was and Indiana. When we were in Michigan, Indiana was uh, always a weird place to us. <laughs> <laughs> Given, remember, we were in Michigan, which right, right, which right. has it, its problems. Right, right. It's, it's, <laughs> so. The main bit of evidence, though, that the defense starts to focus in on, and you may have heard me just kind of briefly mention it in the last episode, was this sweatshirt. So at the scene of the crime, there is a sweatshirt found, and it is an Indiana Department of Corrections sweatshirt, basically like an inmate's sweatshirt. And in the back inside of the collar is like with a Sharpie written backbone. First, okay, like what's what's backbone? Like what does that have to do with with the case? Well, first off, no one with the prosecution or with the police or with the investigation checked with the Department of Corrections to see well who whose nickname is backbone. Uh, That's that's typically part of the information. That's part of someone's uh, jacket is is any uh, aliases or nicknames that they may have. According to the Seventh uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, David Cam's attorney has that sweatshirt tested for DNA and two profiles come back that don't match to anyone else in the case. I'm a little uncertain about this because in the 48 hours mystery special, they interview a, uh, a DNA analyst with the Indiana state police, uh, who also said that she found these profiles. Um, so I'm not exactly sure who found it and when, but in any case, these two profiles are found. They don't match anyone in the case. And most importantly, though, the DNA was never run through CODIS. Right. That, that's the part I recall is that they had they had done DNA testing on this, had these profiles, but they had not run them through through that. And, and maybe it was because it was a mixture at the time. There may have been issues with mixtures and separating mixtures. And uh, I, I've never seen these profiles, but obviously if there isn't a dominant one, which you might get if it's wearer DNA, but if there are some issues with it or there's some degradation, especially in the year 2000, you really couldn't upload those up into CODIS. Well, the... Uh, not exactly sure because the, the, what they, they find, at least of this initially, is they, they say they find two profiles, one being male, one being female. And, uh, so that would lead me to believe that, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe there is some sort of amount of mixture to it, but it does seem that there is at least, um, you know, enough there to, to isolate these two distinct profiles. Uh, I, I see your point, but, uh, I'm going to now use my new DNA information. True. Uh, 
Now, you, you can have a mixture, and it can be a clear mixture of multiple people, you know, two people. And if you have a, at least one – if you have a Y showing up, then you know at least one is True. a male. So you can actually, when you look at one of the genes, tell that it was a mixture of a man and a woman and so on. So, right. That makes so sense. It, so it could be a mixture. Well, here's the next problem, though. And again, this is according to the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals document. The defense asks the prosecutor, uh, Stan Faith, to run it through the database, and he agrees to do so. And defense attorney calls back several times to get the results, and the prosecutor says that nothing came up. But in reality, the prosecutor and the uh, lead investigator never ran the test at all. Mm -hmm. So... First trial, again, is uh, overturned, so it has to go sent back to a second trial. Well, the new lead investigator for now this second trial, he finally runs the profiles. And one of them matches to Charles Bonet. So, Charles Bonet is a repeat violent offender with a history of attacking women at gunpoint. Uh, he had been out on parole just months before the murders. And Bonet is spelled B-O-N-E-Y. Guess what his nickname was, Glenn? Well, I don't have to guess. <laughs> but it may have something to do with that Sharpie in the collar. Yep, backbone. They next up compare his palm print to the one found on the Bronco, and it matches. Do you remember me talking about the shoes that were placed on top of the car? We both commented on how strangely it was that they were placed kind of neatly on the roof of the Bronco. Right, and it would be evil genius if it was actually a staged scene. Well, so here's the thing about Charles Bonet. He really likes shoes, like, as more than a friend. Okay, <laughs> When he was at Indiana University in the 80s, he had been known as the Shoe Bandit, and he had a history of armed attacks against women, uh, several of which involved the theft of shoes. So sometimes he would even make harassing phone calls in the months before the attack, asking the women that he would attack later if they were wearing high heels. Totally coincidental. Nothing to do with this case. <laughs> it was at this point, listening to, like originally, again, listening to the information about this case over a podcast, that I was like, okay, case solved. I mean, we got his DNA. We got his palm print. We got his kind of MO for with the shoes. Like, this this is all this is perfect right this fits perfectly well um in three separate interviews over 20 hours um the police bring charles bonet in and they start pressuring him to implicate david kim they even suggested to him how how it possibly could have happened so they suggest different scenarios and how bonet could have witnessed david cam pulling the trigger and he denies any involvement but his story is changing all over the place. I can't imagine this this scenario where you basically find just this, hey, wait, oh, here's all of the evidence. And the police bring him in saying, okay, how did David Cam do it? Because we know you were there. I right, right. Well, I mean, the first part of it is admitting that you were wrong and that the person that you have imprisoned for several years was not the right guy, even though they believed. It's why I asked that question in the last episode. I mean, these police officers that worked with him, these investigators, they truly believed that he was the kind of person who not only could have done this, but definitely did this. So right. 
for them now, it is just about, okay, how do, how do we make both of these things work? How do we fit both of them together? Well, they both must have been there. Right, right. And again, that would, that's still going back to, we got to also make the blood evidence fit because this all right. has to fit together, right? It's not just this new evidence. We also have this existing evidence where David Cam had to have been there. So eventually Bonet tells investigators that he witnessed David Cam pull the trigger uh, after uh, bringing the murder weapon to the scene. So the, the story is, the theory is that Cam and Bonet met at a basketball game and that uh, Cam asked Bonet to bring a uh, an untraceable gun to his house. Cam, uh, Bonet just you know, brings it in. He's like, all right, here you go. And doesn't realize that Cam's just going to go immediately inside, shoot his family. And Bonet had no idea that this was, this was going to happen. So his, his final story is that um, he brought the gun into Cam. David then shot his family. He didn't try to shoot Bonet, but the gun jammed. So David runs back into the house. Bonet checks on the family in the Bronco, leaves his palm print, leaves the sweater, and then runs off. And and as you said, this is a little reminiscent of making a murderer because many hours of interviews and the police are providing this information as well. Yes. Although I believe in one of the interviews, Bonet was aware – because this is a high-profile case in Indiana. Bonet was aware and had heard quite a bit about this on the media. So there – uh, I, I, without seeing the transcripts ourselves, it's not exactly clear what he would have learned from the media versus what the police might have suggested to him. Well, and these stories changed quite a bit. I mean, there's an initial interview where he said that, well, first of all, he said he was never there. And then he said he brought the gun and never went in the garage and that there's no way his fingerprints were going to be on the car. And then he's, yeah, I, I, I remember those statements. And then he's, then there's, okay, your fingerprints on the car. Okay. So, I brought him the gun and then he tried to kill me and then he ran off and then I checked on them and must have touched the car and then I left. So the stories did change quite a bit of uh, one after the other. And the shoes on the topic of the, of the vehicle? <laughs> oh, oh, I, I just absentmindedly just must have in, in just all the craziness of the moment, just placed them there. And it's just coincidence that I was a shoe bandit, you know, in the, in the past. <laughs> Why are, you, right. why are you chuckling, Glenn? That's a completely possible story. Completely possible, right. Right, so like you said, case closed, we've got our guy. So then there's the other DNA profile. So at one point, Bonet claims that he was not there because he was with his girlfriend. So police interview Mala Singh Mattingly and ask to get her DNA profile. And it matches the other profile from the sweater. Well, saying that he was with Mattingly was probably a mistake for Bonet because she comes in and testifies that he that he was not with her that night, but he had actually left to, quote, go help a friend. Prosecutors now believe, okay, this is David Cam. He's the friend that he had to go help by help by bringing the gun to the scene. And Mattingly also testified that he came home, had a scrape on his knee and showed her a gun, which caused her to like wake up and go like, what the hell is going on? And uh, so it all kind of fits that, you know, even more evidence that uh, Bonet was there and at least by the end of the um, of the incident had the gun uh, from uh, from this crime. So there is there's quite a lot of physical evidence against uh, Charles Bonet at this point. Uh, would you agree with that, Glenn? Like I said, case closed. 
Uh, and again, testimony from his girlfriend. Well, here's one more piece of evidence. Um, uh, Diane Tolliver was a, a document examiner is asked to look at a written statement that Bonet had made during his interview, but he had scratched out a bunch of the words. Well, the words that, that she kind of found underneath the scratch outs were David Cam asked me to follow him to a secluded area. He wanted to talk to me about something that could help me financially. He said, I followed him from better way food mart to the parking lot of target. This is all kind of now evidence used against Charles Bonet to say, no, you, you not only were you involved, but you like, you went with him afterwards. Never mind that, you know, we again, we got these 11 witnesses all saying that David Cam was playing basketball at the time or that the prosecution's initial theory of the crime was that he just slipped out of the basketball, killed his family and slipped back in because, you know, he was there at the, the end of the basketball night. Uh, in December 2005, uh, Bonet is convicted on three counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. The jury only takes less than an hour to decide on convicting for uh, Kim's murder, the mother uh, in this crime. Uh, but it took longer for the jury to decide on the charges for the kids. Uh, they, in a little interview, they did a lot of wondering about whether or not Bonet was, would knew whether or not the kids were going to be killed when the he brought the gun to David Cam uh, at the garage. Right, for premeditated first-degree murder. Exactly. But he's convicted, I believe, at something like 200-plus years, and and his later appeals have all been denied. So the next month, uh, January 2006, uh, the second trial begins for David Cam. <sighs> oh, I, can, I, can I jump in here with one thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll mention this, too, because listeners may not realize this. You know, when the first case is overturned, you know, Cam gets out of jail. So I, I, I think he was out for like six weeks. Right. Which you have this taste of freedom. Right. And then you're out for a few weeks and then, bam, turns around. The prosecutors are going to retry you with the, the evidence that, that they have. And then when the evidence comes along for Bonet – I believe he's released again. Uh, he he's able to he's out for a period of time, uh, and then he's able to go through the next trial. And after Bonet's trial, you have to be so relieved it's over, it's done. This is it. They they found the person who killed my family. Right. You you. I mean the the emotional toll at this point but the joy of they solved the case not only have they exonerated me but they have found the true killer except that's not of course what happened right because the the new prosecutor like i said also believes that there's enough to move forward with the second trial so the one of the first you know one of the initial decisions that the the judge makes in the second trial is that the jury is only told about uh, Bonet's palm print and his DNA found at the scene. They're not told about his recent conviction that had happened the month before. They're not told about his history of violent crimes against women. They're not told about his shoe fetish. Just, there's this other guy, his palm print's there, his DNA is there, and the whole theory that the prosecution has about him being the one that brought the gun uh, to the scene. Right. So again, it puts the emphasis back on the the blood spatter because that's the evidence that places him still at the scene of the crime at the time of the shooting. Right. 
Now, also another decision that comes up in the trial, there's a conspiracy charge against Cam, uh, saying he conspired with Bonet to commit the murders. That's dropped because the state doesn't present sufficient evidence that they knew each other or talked or had any of this, you know, prior connection to each other where, you know, to plan this all out. So then that's kind of the whole conspiracy part of the charge. Uh, and then there's one of the 11 basketball players kind of backs away and says now he's not sure whether or not Cam could have left the gym and come back because, you know, he was more focused on playing basketball. But there's still there's 10 other guys saying that he was there the whole time. Right. So uh, the second trial, he uh, the jury is out for four days and uh, they return a guilty verdict. Uh, they they believe the blood evidence uh, that was presented in the trial uh, again, having to have come from that, that gunshot, uh, and that he was, uh, molesting his daughter. And that was the, you know, basically the, uh, uh, you know, the reason, you know, why David committed this crime and killed his whole family is because that was being found out by his wife. So, uh, some of the couple of things happened real quick in between after the second trial, uh, Keith Henderson, the prosecutor, he accepted a book deal about this case, uh, he, though he never does cash the advance check, but after a couple of years of back and forth, uh, the Indiana appeals court eventually removes him as the prosecutor, uh, and imposes a public rep- reprimand for professional misconduct. But now the second trial gets reversed. So remember how I, you know, we had said the, the appeals court after the first trial said, don't bring out all these 13 women, but also don't bring back up the, um, molestation the molestation topic unless you can prove that it was actually david cam was the one that did it not just there's evidence that the daughter was molested but no evidence as to who did it well they did exactly what the appeals court said not to do and uh this is you know basically the basis for overturning the second trial right so overturned he's out of jail again but but we're coming back for trial number three. And he goes back in. Yes. Again, a little timeline. The initial uh, murders take place in 2000. The first trial is in 2002. Gets overturned. Second trial is in 2006. Gets overturned. Third trial is now 2013. And and I'm going to jump in with one thing, too, because I don't know if the things you had read. I, I remember this part of it. Sure. The, the family members have all basically have second mortgages on their homes. They have drained themselves financially to help support David through legal fees and expert fees and all of these trials, which the state, of course, has unlimited resources, whereas you, the the, the basic, you know, and you said that they were, you know, fairly well off well-to-do family in town, but they are being completely sucked dry financially. And I think I mentioned it last episode that it's his uncle that's basically funding this entire defense and leading the charge, being in front of the cameras, you know, saying over and over again that he is innocent of this. And this is the same uncle that was uh, his boss at his new job that he had just started in 2000 and his uncle that was there with him playing basketball. His uncle is basically saying, I I know this is, he didn't do this because I was physically there with him uh, in that gym. He could not have done this. What's interesting in some of these documentaries is seeing now the other side, the parents and sister of of uh, of Kim, the the mother, uh, David's wife. Yeah, they are 
you know, completely convinced that, that David Cam is guilty of this and, and they're having to go through this over and over and over again as well. Uh, believing that, you know, the state has now twice convicted and twice have it overturned the, the, you know, the murderer of, of, uh, of their daughter and grandkids. Yeah. And he's basically getting off on a quote unquote legal loophole. Right. This, you know, really all comes back to the blood evidence. This is the evidence that puts him at the scene. Jailhouse snitches, you know, have been, you know, basically discredited. The sexual misconduct allegations have been set aside. The, uh, allegations of, uh, molestation of his daughter have been set aside. Uh, all this, all the evidence really just comes down to the blood evidence. So last week I mentioned Robert Stites as one of the blood experts that had testified uh, against David Cam in his first two trials. And uh, according to, again, this is according to the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, document that was uh, published uh, this past September, he later admitted to not being a crime scene reconstructionist. Actually, having never taken any blood stain analysis course before uh, dealing with this case and having almost no scientific background of any kind. I had mentioned last week that um, he is working on his master's and PhD in fluid dynamics. Well, that was not true. His degree is in economics, and he flunked the only college science class he had ever taken. Uh, he had never investigated homicides for the Army, Naval Intelligence, or the FBI, as he had claimed. Uh, in fact, that this was the first homicide he had ever processed. In the third trial, Stites comes in as a defense witness, testifying that he had perjured himself in the first two trials. And these were all fraudulent credentials. Uh, none of this background in crime scene reconstructionism or working all these other cases or being a professor. Uh, none of this is, was even true. I, I even went through and I saw a news article from 2002 where he's listed as being a professor uh, in the newspaper. And that that's just was not true. Right. I, I, I'm going to jump in here, too, with something that, as I recall, Stites wasn't the only expert that the prosecution had retained. I mean, we mentioned Rod Englert as well. Rod what didn't attend the scene. What was so critical about Stites was he was the one at the scene who had made observations, who had documented various things. But at some point, Englert gets involved from photographs and other case information. So it's it's not that it just rests completely on Stites. And and if I recall, after defense hires their own blood spatter experts, I believe prosecution also retains Gardner and Bevel. So I as I recall, they had four experts on their side. And Bevel and Gardner are sort of the Terry Labor and Bart Epstein in the field. It's these two guys that teach together and have been teaching blood spatter courses in the U.S. for a number of years and are big fans of crime scene reconstruction. I won't get into some of the, my personal views on some of the literature and some of their articles. I have mixed feelings about some of the things that they've written. Uh, it, it, it is sometimes antithetical to the Lausanne approach, which is what I have spouted before because I was brainwashed <laughs> by Lausanne. <laughs> Those and, Swiss... And, Ah. Yeah, and sometimes their approach is quite, quite frankly, the opposite of the Lausanne approach. So I, I don't always agree with it, but I don't, I don't believe that's always wrong either. I just, I, I find myself not always agreeing. So as I recall, there were four bloodstain experts for the prosecution. Does that fit with what you, your, your, you Cor had? 
Uh, yeah, correct. The, that and Bevelin Gardner. I mean, you see them in the vendor hall at the II conference. Um, yeah, you know. So yeah, Bevelin Gardner, Englert, who was you know, basically the original guy who was called, and then Stites, who was the original guy that actually came to the scene. And then, like you said, Bart Epstein and Terry Labor uh, are are brought in, and then also it should be Anita Wondra and one more. Yes. Gats? Gats, yeah. Okay. As I recall, one of the things about this, because it was going on at the same time as Swigstein, was that you had a number of members on Swigstein that were involved in this case on opposite sides, and you had literally four experts for the prosecution and four experts for the defense with completely different mechanisms that could have caused these stains found on cam's shirt and that was bart epstein and terry labor who we talked about before in relation to the staircase case but then also uh barry getz and anita wonder i think yeah she's a fluid dynamics expert so it that's amazing that you have these you know opposing experts and and that they're all on the same swig you know swig committee that uh, swig stain that's for anyone out there that's not in the forensic field that's listening just you know for fun to this episode that's not a uh, you know pr- a practitioner uh the swigs were uh scientific working groups so uh the FBI basically funded this uh these projects to have experts in different fields come together uh to write standards for their respective fields so swig stain was the one for blood stains there was also uh, you know, Swig Fast was the one for fingerprints and about, what, 15 or so other ones uh, from various other disciplines. Uh, may, most of those have been replaced now with the OSAC groups and subcommittees, uh, but that's just a little historical thing. But it's still amazing to me that they're all on the same committee and involved in the same case and on opposing sides. That, that's I, I can't think of anything like that. Yeah, I don't know if every single one of them was on Swigstein. I don't think they all were, but... I'm, I'm, I'm ha- at least half of them. Right. Uh, can you think of anything like that? It's it's not just like, you know, you have yes, a defense I, expert. I oh, you, oh, yes, okay. I can. Okay. The, the Shirley McKee case, ah. where in the Fingerprint Society well, meetings, you had a number of people on both sides that were attending, presenting, and hanging out, talking to one another. But I mean, that, that's, I mean, it's still more like a conference, right? Where, I mean, like everyone goes to the conference. It's not like the select body of the experts writing the standards for the field, though. I mean, it, I get, I get good the point. similarities, but yeah, good point. Here's the thing the blood stains on David Cam's shirt that are pointed to as this high velocity spatter that could have only come from being in close proximity to, you know, the gun and the body that was hit by the bullet. There were eight drops. Eight. Eight stains. Eight stains. Sorry, yeah, I guess stains is probably a better word than drops. But so the, this, 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 uh, this kind of stain is comes from like, you know, the bullet impacting or going through or blowing back and basically blood misting because it's such a high velocity, a high force that impacts the person. So with this kind of mist and the, even in the documentaries, you see these examples, right? Of, of, you know, gun being fired into blood and just, this mist just going everywhere. It just seems impossible that that you would reach this conclusion where you would normally see just an uncountable number of stains to just eight. Yes. All right. So you, you know, we discussed some basics of bloodstain pattern evidence last time. I'll 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 remind listeners of what I said before because this is pretty critical here. It's the size, shape, and distribution. 
generally what you do is you first look at the sizes of the various stains because the sizes correlate to this quote unquote that we talked about last time like like you said high high force high velocity versus low velocity and so on there's this correlation generally but there's a lot of overlap second thing are the shape and the shape if they have directionality means that they're traveling at some sort of angle typically as opposed to if they have no directionality they're just a, a perfect circle then it's usually a 90 degree travel or a, a straight drop downwards gravity acting on it the the third thing being the distribution meaning you look at the pattern of these stains are they clustered for example in a random sort of circular passion, uh, pattern something you might often see this randomness sort of a circular pattern you would normally see that with spatter whereas if there was a linear shape a line that they're all in a line sequential line you associate that with something called cast off and that you have all these different kinds of spatter patterns the distribution of these stains that are indicative of the mechanism so as you're pointing out eric there are only eight of these stains so it's not that you can't draw any inferences it's how certain are those inferences going to be? The more da- you know, it's it's like sampling from a population. If you go out and sample eight people and then try to predict how, who's going to be the next president based off that that sample, you're making an inference about a population that you didn't test. It's effectively the same thing here. You have a sample of eight and you're making an inference about the mechanism and the population of stains that were created but didn't land on that shirt or didn't go on that shirt or did something else. So is it possible it could have been that mechanism or another one? You're, it, it's about the certainty of the inference that's being made. Well, so let's, let's back up here. You talked about size. So the, the size of the stains on this shirt. Are small. I mean, small isn't. I mean, really small. Like you're not. You don't. Don't imagine the typical blood droplet that you you know falling and hitting a surface and 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 having like a a distinctive. Oh, that looks like a a blood droplet, right? This is this is way smaller than that. Yeah, the head of a pin, effectively. Uh, and then shape. The, there's no shape anymore at this size. It's it's just. It, nope, it's just nope, the individual nope. fibers, like the the hand, the couple, one or two or three fibers that this the blood is actually attached to. There's no yeah. discernible shape like, oh, this is from a, you know, this is perpendicular to the surface or this is at a high angle. You know, you don't get that tail from blood landing you know, in a drop kind of thing. There's just there's no shape to it at all. Right. So particularly one of the things that we also discussed last week is the target that it strikes. So the shirt being the target. When you're dealing with fabric, fabric absorbs it and then diffuses it differently than, let's say, a non-porous surface would. And so that has to be taken into consideration too because obviously it will, it will affect the shape of the droplets. You can still have some directionality, but all, but going back to what you just said with the very small droplets – it's it, this is going to be a very very difficult to be able to show some directionality for such a small droplet on a very difficult not great if you will recording target and then distribution most of these appear to be in in roughly a line with a couple of outliers but i would say uh, at least half are are in are fairly linear in relationship to each other 
there's just really too few stains to really make any kind of true inference. You know, we also discussed last time how clothes and hair and other things can impede or or basically affect the outcome as well, and it can hinder how these droplets go on various targets. Given eight stains out of what should be thousands of stains, the it is such a weak inference. It, in likelihood ratio terms, you could really have these being produced by multiple mechanisms, the, especially the distribution of stains. So let me talk through this. The, the, the stains are tested and they match the DNA of the daughter. Now, the daughter is in the, the back seat you know, behind the, the passenger seat uh, in the car. Yes. So uh, now looking at where the stains are on the shirt. The stains are at the very bottom, almost right next to the hem on the, the left-hand side of the person wearing the shirt. Like if you're in the car, let's say you're right-handed and holding that over the seat to shoot somebody, could the, the left-hand side of your shirt be kind of exposed around the, the, the actual seat seat? You know, most of the thousands of, of, uh, you know, impacts from this, this high velocity, um, blood spatter hits the back of the seat and then only these eight get onto the shirt. Does that, uh, does that kind right. of fit and- any scenario or? And you're right. It, it, given the position of it, I mean, it doesn't quite make sense. Plus, on the seat, as I recall, there are some larger stains on the seat, and yet there are no larger stains on the actual shirt. So, how would you have some of them effectively flying all around, but they all, by random, all the larger ones by random chance, happen to miss the shirt? And, and one one other very important principle we I, we briefly discussed last time is that larger stains will travel farther than smaller stains. Uh, so it, it has to do with the the momentum of the stains and the mass of the stains. Well, right, like with the same kind of effort, you can throw a, a golf ball a lot further than you can throw a ping pong ball. Right, if you throw them a, a golf ball and a ping pong ball with the exact same force, the ping pong will not go as far because of wind resistance and its buoyancy. It has less mass. And in in uh, terms of physics, it has what I believe it's called impulse, less impulse. So you worked for a long time with, with Bart Epstein. And uh, I was kind of going to go through a couple of the things that he did in this trial and talk about a couple of the, uh, the experiments uh, that he did to, you know, to try to demonstrate different possible mechanisms that would lead to the blood getting onto the shirt. And I, I think that's really the, the important thing here is he seemed to be approaching this, not from a, I'm going to do this test to demonstrate that this is how the blood got onto the shirt, but he did these tests in to say, well, this is possible and this is possible and this is possible. Nothing rules anything else out. It's just, all of these things are, are possible mechanisms to get the blood on this shirt. And another great way of phrasing it, the very extremely few number uh, of sample points here aren't enough to say conclusively one way or the other. Right. So Bart did what I, I truly appreciate from a Lausanne perspective is he said, OK, we have these stains. This is the evidence. If the person was shot, could these stains appear on the shirt this way? Yes, it's possible. If the person had done some other mechanism, for example, as Cam described, leaning into the back seat, trying to get his son out, and the daughter's head had been slumped over with blood, 
matted down in her hair and the shirt came into contact with bloody hair, could the stains have gotten on the shirt that way? Given that scenario, is it possible to see these stains? The answer is also yes, that's also possible. In fact, you could propose various scenarios, and the answer is it's possible. So as you say, he never said he never said to the prosecution, I disagree. It can't have come from a gun. It must have come from this other mechanism, which is what Cam said. And my problem with it is going back to activity level is the prosecution is not considering other alternatives. They basically had a theory and said, does the evidence fit the theory? Yes, it does. Okay, done. And that's not how science works. And that certainly isn't how forensic science should work. You should, as we've said in our activity level episodes – Consider the different mechanisms and then ask yourself, what's the chance to observe the evidence under these different mechanisms in a very formal, structured way? And that's what Bart was doing. And and it's like you said, Eric, he never says, here's what happened and here's what didn't happen. He says, here's the evidence. Here's what – here it could have come under this. It could have come under that. But it's important that there are other possibilities that could have produced this evidence. I think that's such a great way of putting it. That's the way it should be presented, especially when down at this this low level. I, and then I think, you know, putting everything together, right? You've got these eight stains on his shirt. And then you have Charles Bonet with his DNA on the sweatshirt that's left behind, his nickname on that sweatshirt, his girlfriend's DNA on that sweatshirt, his palm print on the car, uh, his, the shoes on top of the car that match his his uh, previous MOs, his history of violence against women. Uh, later on, there's more DNA testing done in this third trial, looking at uh, additional additional places. And they find Charles Bonnet's DNA in other places as well, including on uh, Kim, the wife's underwear. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know that. This is I this is news to me. Uh, but my involvement with this case was back back in the early two thousand. Right. So, right. oh, I, I was unaware of that. I believe this came from a a European uh, DNA uh, firm uh, that was then you know challenged back and forth by the prosecution and you know questioned their their methods and all this. However, all this evidence, right? And then no evidence that David Cam. And Charles Bonet had ever met each other, uh, had any interaction at all. Really, the only thing that comes up is Charles Bonet's story after changing it 800 times to, to be, oh, yeah, yeah, he asked me to bring this gun, is the only evidence that they ever interacted at all. Uh, and then there's these uh, eight droplets. And it just seems overwhelmingly obvious to me that uh david cam was not there was not involved again much less the 11 witnesses that put him somewhere else at the exact moment that the crime was taking place so one of the things that i really appreciated that bart did that really laid this case to rest for me i mean i I saw the photos in preparation for the trial but he did this on camera and he said the same thing he said look there's another scenario that's been presented. The evidence could have been deposited that way. I'm not saying which way it was. I'm just saying that there is another possible scenario. In fact, the scenario that Cam said when first interviewed, the evidence fits that as well. It could have been deposited that way. And on camera, he gets – in their blood spatter courses, they have this mannequin with a wig and they mat it down with blood. 
and they get bloody hair and then they have the ends of the hair come in contact with a t-shirt and they then show that bloody hair could have created those exact same appearing stains microscopically they go in and then and i believe the show even shows the microscopic photos of what the the fibers look like that come in contact with blood and that it was very clear this other mechanism could have produced these stains because he did it basically in front of the cameras and recreated those stains with this other mechanism. That was the only evidence I needed to hear at this point is that we don't know how those stains got there. There are too few stains, but there are multiple possible mechanisms that could have caused those. End of story. And my problem with this case that has always been, and this is what I, I remember when the first trial was going on and then the second trial, is that the prosecution experts never allowed for another possibility. They were adamant it must have been caused by gunshot. That's my problem with the case. That's what made me so angry was that they were willing to – they were not willing to be scientists in that they should have considered the other evidence and other possibilities but seemed not to. And the prosecution never allowed any exploration of this other possibility. It was here's how it happened. That's it. End of story. I, I totally agree. This, it's, to some degree, feels a little bit also like the Brandon Mayfield case, right? Where you know you got the Spanish National Police coming back and saying, "Hey, I don't think this is a match," and the FBI just not hearing it, refusing to even consider the possibility that they were wrong when they identified. Brandon Mayfield. The little difference being then the Spanish National Police identified Daoud and then the FBI was like, okay, hold on. They looked at it. They saw basically the match to Daoud and realized that they were wrong in their identification to Mayfield. But this case, it would be like the FBI still to this day maintaining, nope, nope, nope. It wasn't this Algerian known terrorist. <laughs> it was this random lawyer from uh from oregon that that blew up all these uh trains in spain uh, it, and, and then trying him three times for it right yes okay Th that mistake that you laid out of not considering these other options but maintaining that mistake of not considering other options when this this mountain of evidence uh against charles bonnet just erupts on the scene at that moment take a step back <laughs> And I, I don't know if the other experts began to drop off at some point. I don't know if they maintained it all the way through. Uh, I, I mean, I know the prosecution certainly maintained this story True. and obviously had some experts testifying, but I don't, I don't know how, I don't know uh, how many of them for the prosecution maintained this all the way through. But your, your analogy is, is perfect, Eric. Yes. It would be exactly like that, which would seem bizarre. Given this other alternative that has presented itself, it's a perfect out to back off and go, mm -hmm, maybe I got that one wrong. And no one would, you know, no one would say boo about it. Perfect opportunity to, to back off. And yet they don't. Right. So the third trial, David Cam is finally found not guilty and uh, is released from prison after almost 13 years. Uh, and millions of dollars from the state of Indiana spent on, on these trials. Uh, he, he sues Floyd County and the state of Indiana, but the suit is dismissed in 2018. However, uh, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals reversed that decision in 2019 
And that's, you know, like I've been saying, what the document that I've been referencing. Uh, and their main uh, thrust is that original probable cause affidavit on a Fourth Amendment basis. You know, a case can be, can move forward against Stites, Engler, Faith, and Clemens, the original investigator, uh, because none of them revealed that Stites was unqualified to give the opinions that he did. And then another claimed moving forward against Faith and Clemens for suppressing the DNA evidence from the sweatshirt initially. Yeah, and you know it's it's crazy because imagine if Stites did not falsify his credentials. And let's just say that they were what they were, and because you had ex- experts in this case stating that yeah, it was, it was high impact velocity spatter. Thankfully, he he, he falsified his credentials. Right. Uh, right. Right. Or or other. I mean, really, or otherwise, Cam's out of luck yet again. Millions, you know, spent on this case and his defense and all this money and years and years of his life, and the state goes, mm, "Sorry, well, we we acted in good faith. We really thought you did this." Right. And so again, that was just in September. So you know, things are still working their way through the courts uh, at this point. And that was a good document to, to kind of follow through and, and tell, you know, this whole story, uh, supplementing with, you know, some information found from from 48 hours and Dateline and then Glenn's memory <laughs> of the case from from you know, his conversations with, uh, you know, with, with Bart and, and Terry over the years. Another thought on this is just kind of amazing. You know, I was just listening to a podcast a couple months ago because uh, Dateline has uploaded all their old episodes to just to be podcasts in the just the audio format of them. And uh, just listening at work and all of a sudden, this story is incredible. And so just emailed Glenn saying, hey, this is a thing we may want to do an episode on. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know about that one. Uh, <laughs> Bart and Terry, they did the whole thing. And and I had no idea, you know, when I, as I was initially listening to it, that there was this whole, you know, backstory and, and you had all this knowledge about it. But it's it's just such an incredible story. Well, and, and and honestly, Eric, as you know, as we've talked a little bit off air, we're only sharing a, a portion of this with the listeners. There's so much off-camera <laughs> drama with this case and allegedly this and allegedly that. This this case is actually even stranger than the facts that we have been laying out. We've been very careful to lay out just factual stuff. I, I could go into just insane stories about the people involved and some of the accusations and some of the the the, the fallout in in the in the bloodstained community. And I mentioned last week the the research. I, it was really this case that inspired that research as well. You know, if you think about black box research uh, after Mayfield yeah. and some of the research coming from the FBI, oh, true. it was this case in the bloodstained community that really showed a real problem with how evidence was being reported. And that really was the big thing here was the reporting, the documentation, the the photographs and everyone working off of that stuff. I mean, Stites's credentials aside – that really isn't the issue here. The issue here is how is this being reported and what are the strength of the of these conclusions? And because of the of how some bloodstain pattern experts approach this as in I know this, I'm the expert, I'm saying to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty it's this. Well, now we're back to that nonsense again. Whereas there is uncertainty there. In fact, the fewer stains that you have and the more complicated scenarios, the more uncertainty 
should be associated with your conclusions, but the bloodstain pattern community doesn't know how to report uncertainty any more than we know how to report uncertainty with our conclusions. Well, so, uh, I mean, we're getting long here in the episode, but let me ask ask you this. Some, in some of these shows, they talk about blood spatter evidence, just or bloodstain evidence overall as a, as a general forensic field. And these these are just you know these are the the attorneys or people just otherwise involved in the case not not experts uh, in the field and you know from seeing everything in this case you know they're seeing these opposing experts come in and testify i think i saw one person say well i mean essentially just looking at this case you got these experts on this side these experts on this side some of them have to be wrong so it's it's either way a 50 percent error rate and the funny you should say that that was a big discussion back at swig stain was doesn't this case at the 50 have a 50 percent error rate some blood spatter experts asked me about that in this case and my answer is not exactly because one side was saying definitively how this happened. The other side was saying there are multiple mechanisms that could have caused this. So it wasn't like an exclusion True. and an identification. It was effectively an identification and a, I don't know. There are multiple possible sources here. There's not enough information to say definitively, if you will, an inconclusive and and uh, an identification. Although you could rule out Some certain things. mechanisms, right? right. You, it wasn't. It wasn't. It could be anything, but it was the. It, it ruled out some, but still allowed for multiple mechanisms uh, for this exactly. to have happened. Exactly. So that's, that's a good point. So if this really was high velocity spatter, then everyone kind of got it right to some degree, and if it wasn't, then half people got it wrong. Yeah, it, it, it's again, it's why I said it the way I did. Right. It's about the reporting. It's it's less about the conclusions and more about the reporting and the strength of that conclusion and the uncertainty associated with it. So the, some of these other quotes that come out, again, not from experts in the case, but some you know other people observing or, or, or involved as non-experts uh, in this case, you may say something like, Blood spatter analysis doesn't have the supporting underlying science necessary for coming into court. I'm curious what you have to say about uh, about that. Well, you know, it, it is interesting. There have not been many challenges to blood stain pattern analysis until just a few years ago. There had only been a couple on the books, one out of Texas and one out of Minnesota were big ones that were cited. But when it much like fingerprints, yes, there is an underlying science un, you know, beneath this, physics and mathematics and so on. But like fingerprints, it's about the uncertainty of the conclusions. There's a lot of uncertainty. And the nice thing about bloodstain pattern is that because you have quantitative measurements, it lends itself to actual statistical uncertainty, if you will, that you could and, – and it has always bothered me. For years, bloodstain pattern experts would say, well, the the area of impact or the, the origin of the blood is approximately a, a volleyball-sized area. And they you know, they would – when they were testifying, they'd say approximately th- three feet from the ground, three feet from the east wall or something like that. And they'd say a volleyball. And that was their, their uncertainty. But my problem with that is that, well, if you're making measurements of the stains, you can actually calculate the exact uncertainty for these measurements at a confidence interval. You can legitimately calculate a confidence interval for for 
area of impact and such. And they were really – they didn't want to go down that road. My understanding now is part of OSAC, they are going down that road. It really was just a matter of time. So there is quite a bit of, of science that underlies this. It's about, of course, doing some of the basic exploration steps they needed to do like these high-speed videos, having uh, – rewriting their books a little bit to move away from – expert certainty and rewriting some of the terms that overlap and moving into uh, effectively evolving as a science and recognizing not these certain categorical conclusions and definitive statements, but rather, again, like we said with activity level, the range of possible scenarios and what the expectation to observe the evidence is under those different scenarios. They are now evolving like many forensic sciences. Any final thoughts or comments on on this whole case? Uh, I I think I think it's kind of kind of gotten obvious. I, I wanted to keep it a little secret in the first first half the first episode, which way we were leaning on this. And I think it's kind of obvious by now. But I, I hope you guys enjoyed this this kind of road that we traveled down. And any, any last thoughts on it? Yeah, I I truly feel bad for David Cam, not to only to have lost his family, you know, his wife and children being murdered by this. Just sick, terrible person, but then to be accused of it and to have gone through this for two decades and all the money spent, all the family. And, you know, I, to this day, I, I still think it, my recollection is that the her family, the Weiss family still thinks Cam is is involved in this. If he didn't pull the trigger himself, then he hired Bonet to do it. And in, in some way he, he was involved with this. He caused this. Absolutely. That's I really, true. I really feel very bad for him. I, I totally agree that, uh, from basically uh, three or four days after the homicide took place, uh, until, uh, 2013, uh, with, you know, those few weeks that we talked about out, uh, you know, being in prison and, and it's still, even a few months ago, uh, going through the courts for uh, his his lawsuit against you know all those that prosecuted him. Oh, I wish him luck in in uh, moving forward, and and hope that uh, this this does wrap up soon and in his favor. And I just can't imagine that. But besides, even all of the forensic stuff that eventually came out against Charles Bonet, the eleven you know, eleven witnesses, certain they they. You know that they uh, they were playing basketball with you at the time, and uh, and still not enough for for him to go away for thirteen years. That's that's just yeah. Insane. In fact, that's a good point because again, my original knowledge of this case came before Bonet was ever discovered. I and mean, if you think about you know when I was talking to Bart and Terry about this True. in two thousand two or three, so Bonet wasn't even in the picture at that point. It really came down to this argument of you have all these people that saw him at a basketball game, and you have this other possible mechanism that could explain these stains, and that's what the original case was at that point, which I was still convinced. Yes, there's another explanation for these stains. I, I really hope that the bloodstain pattern community does use this like we used Mayfield, as a great learning opportunity that we have to do better here and that we have to recognize our own limitations of interpretation and that 
Anytime that we are making inferences, we have to recognize the uncertainty with those inferences, especially when you're basing that on limited information. Whether it's limited information in the evidence or your own limited information about the world and the world of possibilities, it's no different in fingerprints. And a lot of analogies to, to this kind of evidence translate directly to me to fingerprint issues. And I, I, I think this is a good opportunity for that community to go through the same sort of evolution. All right. I got the perfect analogy here, for especially for our fingerprint examiner audience. This essentially identification with these eight stains convert that for us into an identification with number of minutiae in uh, for a latent print what would that what would that be like give us give us a number of uh, i'm assuming it's not eight minutiae right it's it's less confident than that but so how many minutiae would you say this would be equivalent to of making an identification on uh what what has happened here is all right, all right let's use your analogy let's say it's more like four minutiae now, someone has those matching four minutia, but the other side brings forward another person who also has those four matching minutia and says, it could be this person too. Yeah, but we're sure it's this person. Got it. The first person. That makes sense. Uh, where you have kind of all of it. You have very limited features that, you know, at least in latent prints, no one's really making IDs on four minutia. Uh, and you've got these two different mechanisms. Um, you have pattern type where you can rule out some patterns. True. Uh, and you have you have different mechanisms for the blood stain. You have different people possibility for that. You know that may match these four minutia. Different mechanisms that match. Uh, you know what the the stain looks like. So no, I think that kind of fits and, and helps kind of translate it for for our audience. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Glenn, anything you want to uh, to to bring up here for upcoming classes? Well, we're still under lockdown, so yep. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. But please go to my website, eliteforensicservices.com, or email me, Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at eliteforensicservices.com. You'll find several still-scheduled classes for later in the year, including a Practical Answers for Challenging Questions in the Courtroom course for San Diego area in June. That's still at the moment going, as far as we know. And you'll find other courses and opportunities for training for your agency or even specialized training that I create for your agency. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. And if you have any questions or any kind of follow-up stuff about this episode, please let us know. And uh, you can email us, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at eliteforensicservices.com. All right. Uh, Patreon. Uh, thank you to all of our patrons out there that continue to support us uh, through patreon.com. Uh, if you you enjoy our show and want to help us with the uh, hosting space and the website fees, all that kind of stuff, you know, these, uh, this in the past has helped us get new equipment, new microphones. Um, you know, maybe hopefully someday here in the near future, we can get up to a point where we can even afford to, uh, to outsource all the editing to, uh, to, <laughs> to a professional so glenn and i just have to worry about recording and then we can hand it off to someone else for the editing if you're interested in that please go to uh, patreon.com slash podcast you can also follow us on twitter 
or on Instagram, Double Loop Pod. And our website is doubleloopodcast.com where you can also help us out by looking at some of the merchandise there, T-shirts and mugs and glasses and that kind of stuff. I'll also plug the survey that was mentioned in the last episode or so. This is the Verification Practices of the Friction Ridge Community, a new research project by Kerry Hall, Brianne Breedlove, and Nicole Praska. They're asking you to go to our website, doubleloopodcast.com, and you'll find a link to their SurveyMonkey survey or email Barry. that's C-A-R-E-Y-B-E-R-R-I-E, at hotmail.com to participate in a research survey regarding your verification practices. All right. And remember, uh, anything that we say is representative of the speaker and not anyone that they may work for. And with that, uh, talk to you guys next week and stay healthy out there. Uh, Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay sane.